Welcome to part seven of the iceberg of economics. This is the final part that I am taking from the Reddit. Parts eight and nine will be my own additions to this iceberg. Uh, a lot of these concepts I'm not nearly as familiar with. These is this is a real deep rabbit hole um, that, like, I haven't even heard of a lot of this stuff before. I read about for this iceberg, uh, but. I'm going to do my best to kind of explain some of these kind of heterodox theories and let you know what I think. The first one is military Keynesianism. It's similar to regular Keynesianism, except um, instead of using the increased this is in public spending to spend on infrastructure, social welfare, or just to finance tax cuts, um, the money instead should be used to expanding the military industrial complex and spending more on defense. Uh, the most notable example of this would be the defense of uh, the, the US military industrial conflict post Eisenhower, particularly the Star Wars program with Reagan or um, the Third Reich in Germany is also an example where they basically did all put all their government stimulus efforts into expanding their military. Uh, I don't really see why you would want to do this particularly unless you have a um, a national defense reason to do so or in fighting a war. I mean because I think there'll be a lot of problems with this. One you create like a permanent war economy and I think that's what the argument is is like oh during the world wars or in Germany's case, building up for war and some of the most prosperous, fastest economic growth in like the history of their countries. But that's not sustainable. You can't just keep building a bunch of tanks, especially you're not gonna use them because what kind of outcome? You're just creating jobs, especially if there is no war, building a bunch of tanks and fighter jets um, does have some deterrence effect, but beyond a certain level, you're just doing a more scientifically advanced and higher paid version of digging holes in the ground and refilling them. So, as the pro and so as a result, if you build all this stuff, it'll make politicians um, and war hawks in your country uh, more incentivized to use them. And Wars historically are the worst things for economies in the long term unless you win them in such a convincing fashion that all of your rivals are destroyed. But the human and the moral cost and the social cost of fighting wars and usually the inevitable loss of civil liberties and freedoms that even happen to civilians, even of the winning countries, as a result of war and increased taxes and inflation you need to finance wars usually a net negative outcome for all parties involved, even the winners of the wars. So I personally don't really like the idea of military Keynesianism um, as a response to that. I mean, you either need to find a fight to pick, or it just becomes a glorified version of digging a ditch and filling it. Um, there are other ways, like if you're going to try to stimulate the economy, uh, you can give money back to taxpayers to help them allocate it in the best way, more efficient way possible. Or you can build infrastructure um, that can be used by your public domestically, which are both probably better outcomes than military Keynesianism. The next one is recursive economics. 
which is basically the idea that you have two period optimization and contingent decision making and game theory um, applied to general economic models which neoclassical models usually um, have based on one decision like I'm gonna buy the hamburger today or not whereas a recursive model is a two period one so you maybe have one day you'll buy the hamburger and then the next day you'll buy chicken however maybe if the price of of meat goes up more than chicken, you may just skip the hamburger day one or just go straight to buying chicken the day one and how that would affect the demand for meat across the board. Um, that's And basically now with more modern programming abilities, we can build multi-step models to test a lot of this stuff out. Or if you're trying to do this by hand, like the supply-demand models I had to draw in my economics exams in college, uh, these would be a lot harder to do. So that's why this is emerging. I think it's interesting. There really hasn't been that much really proven applicable results that have come out from this based on what I've read. But I think it's an interesting direction for the future of the field. Another one I'd probably put in a similar category is thermoeconomics. Thermoeconomics is the idea of applying um, the rules of thermodynamics and physics to economies. And I think this could actually apply sociology too. I think economic and social entropy are real things and in order to keep a modern society that is growing to continue to be stable and not devolve into a big um, social mess filled with violence and revolution and just productivity collapsing, you have to put more energy into the society to keep it organized, whether that's through stricter law enforcement or through um, the economy innovating at progressively faster rate to have more stuff to, for everybody to do and to have, raise living standards so that people want to still peacefully cooperate with each other. I mean, it's not necessarily like physical energy. I think that's the thing with the thermal economists get stuck on. It's kind of integrative peak oil philosophy. And that you just have, they literally mean you have to put in more literal energy to keep things going. Whereas I think this energy can also translate into human capital deployed the right way or maintaining a same increase of technological innovation. Or even if with that technological innovation, you can have energy extraction go down. So even if you do need to put more energy, you're not necessarily going to run out. Like, that's the conclusion of the thermal economists have seen to make is that you could presley have to put more energy and there's going to be one point you have peak energy and you run out and therefore the whole system collapses into anarchy. Um, that's the one step I really, but I think the idea of using the laws of thermodynamics, particularly the concept of entropy for economics and sociology is overdue and should be applied more. Uh, the next one of these we're going to talk about is complexity economics, which is trying to utilize the application of complexity science, which mostly applies to physics. But there's a good book I'm reading right now about complexity economics, not complexity economics, but complexity theory things. It's called Scale the Universal Laws of Growth, Innovation, and Sustainability, uh, written by Jeffrey West. Um, and this kind of goes more into um, the science behind complexity theory when it comes to scaling things 
and it doesn't apply just to physics but to biology and economics and urban development and sociological issues too and complexity economics is just part of this and again with advanced big data and um, quantum computing we can build theoretical models about how complexity theory factors do impact economic decision making Again, it's a rather new and emerging um, field in um, economics and it gives you more creative ways to measure like a health of a country based on other fundamentals outside of just traditional GDP numbers um, and it shows that you can build models that have more adaptive um, variations and like the example the most famous one is like a test stock market in Santa Fe and even with doing it with robotics and algorithms it's still at its own bull markets and deep stock crashes and yeah this, this is I think this is just the next step to really um, advancing um, econometrics uh, it's just yeah, however they haven't really been able to use it to really apply anything yet but I'm watching it. it's an interesting it's an interesting idea and then we're going to talk about anti-natalist economics which it's also going to relate to Malthusianism, which I'm surprised Malthusianism is this deep because it's a very popular and old idea. It's from a, a British um, clergyman named Thomas Malthus. It was the idea is that um, food supply only grows arithmetically, whereas population grows exponentially. Like when times are good and there's a lot of food, uh, and wages are and wages are high because there's more resources than people. Uh, population tends to grow until um, the population gets too high to cover the existing food supply, and then you have famine and starvation and tough economic times where people don't have kids because they don't have like, because the effective wage due to the gap of supply factor versus people is negative. So people have less kids or don't have kids at all and the population goes down to the equilibrium and according to Thomas Malthus the equilibrium is subsistence like that the median waiver makes just enough to survive and nothing more and whenever you have a supply shock one way or the other the population will correct up or down uh, to adjust for that. Uh, Malthusianism has largely has been debunked because of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the Industrial Revolution happened, and Malthus can, could not predict this. It made the cost of farming a lot cheaper, and a lot of their basic needs a lot cheaper. So people, so the supply of food can grow much faster than the supply of people, and especially as living standards rose and um, people. Families and diseases were cured, or you weren't likely to die young. Uh, people had little smaller family sizes, and as a result, population is growing far slower than food. Like obesity is now a problem, and so like that is Malthusianism. And there's always a lot of neo-Malthusian arguments that maybe we won't run out of food, but due to housing policy. We're gonna still have overcrowds. Um, there's gonna be too many people, especially now that 
say certain countries have grown past a certain level and they're going to need to consume energy too and so because we're going to run out of energy we're going to run out of housing we're going to run out of raw materials or whatever and it's going to cause the same malthusian trap except instead of food it'll be something else that triggers it and so far none of these neo-malthusian uh triggers have happened yet and that leads me to the next topic is uh, is antinatalist economics which i don't even know was a thing but antinatalism is the idea of policies that discourage people from having children because the world is overpopulated and i guess the field i couldn't even i can't, there wasn't like this is such an obscure form of economics is that they don't even have a Wikipedia page. There is no anti-natalist um, economics Wikipedia page. But if I just had to summarize it, though, based on what I've read about this subject, it's just it's it's neo-Malthusianism, or just people who really just think that they're for environmental reasons again. There are too many people. People are like the easiest way if you really wanted to save the environment is to simply not have kids because every person you put in the world is going to have to have use raw materials to eventually build their own house, drive their own car, um, eat all the food that they need for, or meat or travel and all that stuff requires energy which bears fossil fuel which is bad for the environment and then they'll have kids that will do the same thing. And so I think it comes back down to this. I just noticed with this Reddit, a lot of it comes back to just a lot of different schools of thought to help justify a, um, a more green approach to assessing economics. I'm not going to go into the merits of that one way or the other, but it seems like a lot of economists are heavily prioritizing climate change and other environmental concerns in their frameworks. And then the last two, one is um, Japan, Japanification is the future of the Western society. Japanification is the idea that um, Japan had a big boom in the 80s. It busted. Uh, Japan's baby boom happened a lot faster than other countries, and their birth rates dropped faster due to the hyper-competitive nature and the very high level of population density in Japan compared to places such as Western Europe and North America. And so they were the first to have the, the bust of population. Their population peaked um, and has been starting to go down. And they have way more senior citizens than kids. And so that trend is likely to continue. And there's a lot of implications to this. One, Japanese economic growth is, especially as nominal GDP growth has kind of gone to a standstill. Uh, you've seen just a lot less innovation in Japan in previous generations because there's just less young people in Japan. Housing has become affordable because they're maintaining the existing supply, but the demand is going down because population is going down. Um, and you have the governments that try to compensate for this by racking a bunch of debt for stimulus projects and it hasn't worked simply just because people are shifting to a lower level of consumption in their post-retirement years and the amount of government stimulus is not going to do anything. You don't need to build a bridge 
for people to take road trips from one side of Japan to the other if let people are 80 years old and no longer want to get in a car. I mean, I'm not that's just one example of many. And so the thing is that due to this same population demographic curves there in Europe and to a lesser degree in the US because the US has more space, housing is relatively more affordable, and you have immigration, so uh, that assimilates easier. So as a result, you have much larger young people population in the US compared to other developed countries. But they expect to have the same Japanification, which is weaker financial markets, weaker housing markets. Um, you have lower interest rates because you have a lot more savers than spenders. Weak growth, if not flirting with recession constantly. And you have a declining population and you have increased demand for social services and less people to pay for it. And it creates a, that along with the government's inevitable response for Keynesian stimulus creates an unpayable government debt. That's what is known as Japanification, slow death that results in multiple lost decades until the population pyramid normalizes once again. Do I think it's going to happen? I think it's possible. I think it's far more likely in Europe than the U.S. to happen, but still something to watch and keep in mind. This is a, it's a common narrative, though, in economic circles. Or it's far from a certainty. And then the last one is, there's no argument against hyperinflation on solely theoretical grounds. Yeah, that is true. Like, if you really have these over-indebted governments who cannot raise taxes or cut spending to balance their budgets, the only way out really is inflation. And if you want to just rip the Band-Aid off and do it quickly, just do hyperinflation. Just have a few bad, really bad years of inflation, like 30% plus annualized for, I don't know, four to five years, or if you want to do it faster, like 100% in one year, and double the price level. And you know what? Your government debt would effectively be completely wiped out overnight. Um, that sounds great in theory if you're a government, but if your money loses half of its value in less than three years, uh, there's a lot of social, negative social and economic consequences to that. Um, a lot of middle class people who thought they had a stable retirement no longer do and they'll have to work longer. Uh, wages definitely won't catch up that fast, so you're going to see material drops in standard of living across the board except for those who successfully hedged or the lower classes who are on social assistance anyway, which would likely be in indexed to it. But even then, it probably won't well, actually, probably still because they get they get actual raw and services and food and things, not payment and cash. But those who get like a universal basic income, they won't see it really catch up with inflation. So it's really effectively a giant expropriation among your citizenry. And yeah, in if your economic system, it's the easiest solution to solve a lot of structural government issues, just to wipe out the debt through around hyperinflation. Or you could really even argue, if you want to take us to the absurd extreme, if you just killed off the bottom 5% of the population every decade, uh, you'd probably eliminate 90% of the social problems in any society because most of the social problems are the most economically disadvantaged citizenry, or the, either the causes or the ones suffering from it.
So either way, you're going to eliminate the problem. But yeah, but they, 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 these don't. There's a human toll to it. The hyperinflation again. Families get destroyed. People's time preferences shorten because they don't know if there will be a, their money will have any value tomorrow. So they'll just buy things now, or live a more um, morally licentious and less disciplined lifestyle. It's like why? Like, do you think YOLO was bad now? Um, if you had know that like inflation is going to wipe away everything that you've ever worked for. You might as well just live for the now to the extreme. And that lack of the culture destroying its long-term time preferences was devastating for investments, devastating for innovation and growth and a lot of other things. So there's a huge social consequence. But again, on very theoretical, like not impacting the human and emotional toll and how this affects families and businesses and people's livelihoods on an individual level. And then that anger results in political populism and social tension and possibly violence. That's why uh, hyperinflation is a problem, but theoretically it's not an issue. For the, and that's what this, there is no argument it's hyperinflation on solely theoretical grounds means. And with that, that wraps up the original seven tiers. Uh, we're going to get on to the crazy stuff. If you like this, feel free to share, like, comment, Please spread the word. That's the way we grow this channel and we can make more content like this. Thank you for watching.